Cape Talk. Plan B. She made it, I'm delighted to say. So how was it there in the National Assembly, Rebecca Davis? There's something of a pyrotechnic atmosphere there, I must say, John. I think that we haven't even seen the, the, the start of it because they haven't even begun to debate the Nkandla report, I don't think. But since Lachesa Tsenodi took over from Baleka Mbete in the chair, things do seem to have calmed. There is a particular emotional magnet which uh, Baleka Mbete seems to take into the assembly with her. She does, and she was, I think, doing herself no favours in terms of diffusing that today by saying things like, I don't feel like recognising any of you, and comments like that. Are you trying to reduce emotion or do you want a glass of water was another one of her sarcastic quips. Quite, quite, and, you know, sort of noticeably seeming not to recognise EFF MPs, I think. At the expense of others. Yeah, it's, um, I think the DA is playing a long game here with these endless series of motions relating to Nkandla. So it's a filibuster of sorts. So I assume that their tactic is to prevent the report on Nkandla being adopted, but that means we could literally be here till midnight. So if that is the game they're playing, then I'm afraid it's going to be a, a very long one. Because that is the primary aim of this afternoon's session, is to adopt that official Nkandla report. That's right. So the DA have been bringing up these series of motions about, for instance, the latest was um, can we, I, I moved to debate the, the chickens that run through the chicken coop at Nkandla, previous ones about the security features, the helipad, but like just sort of drip dropping them into this National Assembly discussion. And the idea there that is that that is um, admissible to mention because it's not actually in the parliamentary and Kundla report. So the idea is that they bring this to the public attention, but they're also trying to delay the moment where they actually have to adopt the Nkanda report, which they say is a whitewash. And of course, with the ANC's parliamentary majority, it will be pushed through with no with no problem. And I, mean, I opened by I opened the show by being a bit depressed. <laughs> And then I got a call from Derek to say, don't be depressed because this is democracy in action. How did it feel to you being there? Like democracy in action or something that needed a Valium to counter? Or somewhere in between? I mean, I, I, yeah, it's hard to say, John. There is a sense of playing to the crowd, I think, a bit among the MPs at the moment. Um, I think it was an ANC MP who got up just now and said that they all need to morally regenerate, <laughs> morally regenerate themselves because they're becoming the laughing stock of the public. And I think that that is an aspect, actually. And even these filibustering games and so on, I know they're played in parliaments all over the world, but um, there is a sort of sense of irritation with the theatrics. I think we're all glad that this parliamentary term is coming to an end. And I hope that something happens in the next session to just make things a little more... To just move the order of business along a little more smoothly and give the public at least a sense that their money's being well spent in these expensive sessions in discussing, you know, pressing matters of public interest rather than this very insular debates about parliamentary rules and procedures and that sort of thing. I did love the Corne Mulder's um, comment. What the ANC is trying to do is get this version of Inkandla with which completely and utterly absolves Jacob Zuma from any responsibility. He say, he, li- he likened that to trying to market toothpaste with a garlic flavour. <laughs> <laughs> no matter how hard you tried, nobody was ever that's, going to buy it. That's, which, that's uh, an impressive analogy, yeah, unpalatable. Yes, I, I did mm. enjoy. Um, I'm looking for a bit of paper, but I can't find it, so I'm going to have to go on my memory, which is not what it used to be. But isn't it wonderful 
when an organisation like Afri Forum feels it necessary to distance itself from fringe <laughs> Afrikaners <laughs> like Dan Root. <laughs> it is so, so wonderful, John. It's heartwarming, isn't it? So, the story is... The story is that... Um, the whole story, goodness, John, the, the, that Dan Root, the Afrikaans activist who started a political party before the last elections called Front National, which won only 5,000 votes, and who has been pushing for a separatist Afrikaner homeland, appeared on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart four years ago during the World Cup, where he was interviewed by their then-correspondent John Oliver about racism in South Africa. But what Dan Root didn't realize was that the whole thing was a massive stitch-up in the time-honored traditional satirical CD uh, satirical TV shows like Ali G, like, you know, candid camera sort of setups. But nonetheless, J- Dan Root was quite clearly captured on camera saying some rather extraordinary things like 99.9% of all crimes committed by young black men. I was served at the bank by an affirmative, by which he me- meant a black person. Obama's not much of an American because he's African. IQ levels, interbreeding. I mean, just this, this what John Oliver called this, the just this vintage bigotry. Um this was was aired on the Daily Show and circulated quite widely at the time without any apparent murmur from Dan Rhodes. It's even on his Wikipedia page, in fact. And Dan Rhodes strikes me as the kind of person who probably monitors his Wikipedia page quite closely. Probably the only person who does. Quite so, quite so. Um, be that as it may, I came across it on Twitter last week and I thought it was hilarious and I shared it very innocently. I didn't even tan Dan I have no interest in innocently. him. I absolutely did. I've, I thought it was funny and I shared it. Next thing, Dan Rutt comes after me and tells me he's going to sue me and The Daily Show, mainly The Daily Show, but he's going to cite me as well for one billion rand for loss of <laughs> reputation and for slander, which I also didn't understand because he's quite clearly filmed on camera saying these offensive things. But um, I... I just took it as a as empty talk, to be honest, because it's ludicrous, frankly, ludicrous. But uh, he seems to be sort of escalating his earnestness about this threat. He was interviewed on EWN yesterday where he re- reiterated his claim that he was going to sue, um, sue The Daily Show and he was going to sue me in particular for sharing this clip and that the idea that calling him a racist is slanderous and defamatory because, among other things... But Afriforum says he's a racist now, so he's going to have to sue them too. And Afriforum not only said he was a racist, but they also republished the clip of the video. So if his claim is that publishing the clip of the video is what is really harming his reputation, there are so many people at this stage he has to go after, John. I mean, the clip has been endlessly circulated around the internet with delight and amusement because it is very, very funny. And the idea that Dan Rudd is not a racist and would would like to defend that position in a court of law is also so mind-blowingly absurd. If you have ever read his right-wing blog and seen the kind of utterances he comes out with with a straight face about, for instance, black intelligence, about what black people are like, and about what English-speaking South Africans are like. It's um, it's wonderful, actually, to see a reform distancing themselves from his bigotry. And the only question, I think, on a lot of our minds is why they didn't do the same with his pal Steve Hoffmeyer. But I think there may be some financial reasons behind that because Hoffmeyer is, I think, quite a fundraiser for the Afroforum cause. Now, I want to... It's something that I find it difficult to come to a settled position on. At what point does 
an allegation of something serious against you mean that you must remove yourself from public life. And if you have done something wrong and have been found guilty of doing something wrong and been sentenced to prison and you've served your sentence and come out, at what point and under what circumstances are you entitled to go back to public life? There, mm. there are three stories I want to put in front of you and in front of the listeners. Um, the one comes out of um, NRL, National Rugby League in in Australia, where one of the best-known players in Australia, Kirisa Mawava, has been suspended for most of next season's premiership over a domestic violence condition. He got drunk and he pushed his girlfriend to the floor, punched holes into the wall of her home and then grabbed her arms and slung her into a wall. He was fined uh, several thousand Australian dollars for having done that. And the National Rugby League is now saying that he's suspended for the rest of the season and he won't be allowed to return to the game ever until he has demonstrated behavioural change designed to prevent the recurrence of violent behaviour towards women. That's one story. The other story also comes from the world of sport, comes from the world of soccer, football in the United Kingdom, where a convicted rapist called Ched Evans, he was sentenced to five years for rape, he served two and a half years of that, half of the sentence, he's out of jail now, and... He is training again with his original club, Sheffield United. Sheffield United say they allowed him to train with them following a request from the Professional Footballers Association. And one of the members of the board of Sheffield United, a female TV presenter called Charlie Webster, has resigned as a result of that. And the, the third is a story that I know that you have been covering, the, um, the Cape Town artist, Zuelertum Tetwa who is awaiting trial on murder charges. He's alleged to have killed a sex worker. And a painting of his, Good Times, achieved a higher-than-expected price at a Strauss & Co. auction in Johannesburg on Monday night. So is there a one-size-fits-all approach? That's interesting, John. I hadn't thought of classing those together, but actually they all make perfect sense. And one could even add perhaps the South African playwright who was recently blocked from um, having his work mounted at a festival here in Cape Town, the French uh, Festival in Cape right, Town, because of the right. conviction for sexual harassment at Fitz University. Yeah, that's right. Um, I think that the the the, the Tetra case is interesting. What struck me as unpalatable about that in the past was the idea that the the that his work would be snapped up in this sort of um, that there would be this sort of unpalatable element to it, whereby the value of his work would rise because he would be seen as sort of dark and glamorous in the way that artists some, sometimes are when there was a dead woman at stake. Not that he has been convicted of murdering her, of course. He's just accused. I'm interested in that auction of his work that happened on Monday whenever it was because although I found the timing really interesting, I mean, it was the first day of his murder trial that was slated to begin and it didn't begin then in the end, but it, that was when it was supposed to. But I'm wondering if who the owner of the painting was, because if it was Willetu Mtetwe himself, I suspect it may have something to do with him, his mounting legal bills, to be honest. And that would strike me as... Got 136,416 rand. Uh, it was expected to fetch somewhere between 80 and 120,000 rand. And Stefan Veltz has apologised, understandably, for these comments. I think people will look at the work in terms of the quality rather than the man. Herman Charles Bosman was on death row, but fortunately he got out of prison. His best work is about his time in prison, and people respect him as a great writer. If Swaletu does go to prison, he might produce something really interesting. But, I mean, so what is, is there a point, or does one have to do this as a case-by-case -case basis? And Because all of these involve mm. violence against women. That's true. The, the case of Chad Evans, the footballer, I think 
The suggestion that by Sheffield United that he might come back and train with them and play again for the club. I think the reason why that particular case caused such outrage from British women was because he seemed so utterly unrepentant. I mean, he still claims he's completely not guilty despite having been completely found unanimously guilty by a jury and denied the, the right never to Never apologised, never, never offered any... Yeah. Only spent no two and a half years behind behind bars. And I think there was a feeling that although he has served his time, perhaps he should have resumed his football career, perhaps just lowered down the footballing ladder rather than being able to be parachuted in exactly where he'd left off. Because I think people f- felt that the message they were sending was that football was more important than anything else. There was just sort of bemusement from the fans that, of course, he would be allowed to come back and take up his position as if nothing had happened. And I think particularly given those circumstances where there was very little remorse shown, where people felt that perhaps justice wasn't really done. But guilty people do go to jail. Guilty people do go to jail. Uh, Certainly on the facts of the case, as I understand them, he was as guilty as hell and the court was absolutely right to find him so. But maintaining innocence despite a conviction and a jail sentence is not uncommon. No, it's not uncommon. In this case, also the, the woman he raped has been hounded from her life, basically. She's had to take up a new identity. She's moved away from her family and friends because of the relentless vitriol she received from Sheffield United fans. I also think that played a part in it, that people felt it was monumentally unfair that the woman who had already experienced sexual trauma now has basically no chance of resuming a normal life where her rapist is seemingly offered it up on a platter once again as if nothing had happened. And I understand why that's disagreeable. At the same time, we have to respect the notion that, you know, that the court's do their, their, their work and rehabilitation can be allowed to take place. I mean, John, it's the same debate about Oscar Pistorius. A lot of people felt, you know, very un, unhappy about the thought that if if Pistorius was was out in a reasonably short time that he could get back on the, the, the track and start training, even though he would have, you know, gone through the legal process and been and been acquitted. There's something about it that just doesn't sit right, does it? Yeah, but there's a difference between something not sitting right mm. and not allowing something to happen. Yeah. So it, it w- if Ched Evans did play for Sheffield United, I would find it very difficult to watch a Sheffield United game. I would personally have a great deal of anger at the fact that he'd been taken back into the club's fold. But does that mean that the Football Association should say... If you have been convicted of a crime and you've served your sentence, that's it. Your career as a a professional footballer is over. um, And are we making a special category for sexual crimes there? Because I wonder if that would apply to a crime other than rape. I think the the first example you cited, which I hadn't heard of, the Australian footballer or rugby player, actually sounded quite a sensible solution, just that he would be expected to undergo the kind of rehabilitation which would suggest that he really was aware of the impact of his actions and was taking the necessary steps to ensure that it wouldn't happen again. I actually quite like the sound of that, John. I thought that was perhaps a good a good solution there. Um, the difference is he pleaded guilty. I mean, it's one mm. of the differences with Chet Evans. He said, I'm guilty and mm. uh, I wish I hadn't done it. I have issues with alcohol, which we know a lot of professional sports people do. Mm. So th- there is no catch-all approach to it. Because there's something immensely attractive about rehabilitation, the idea of mm. rehabilitation, that... that that a prison sentence is not just about retribution and revenge. It is also about the possibility of rehabilitation. And then who judges whether rehabilitation has taken place? You and I are sitting here in Cape Town and saying Ched Evans is quite clearly not rehabilitated. Mm. Do we have that right to make that judgment? I think also of the case of Amanda Knox, the American student who was 
convicted, acquitted, convicted, acquitted of murdering her uh, English digs mate in Italy in Perugia where they were studying and latterly acquitted the cases ongoing in Italy but has now just taken up a job in Seattle as a reporter and um, people are outraged about that as well. No, you don't need those. <laughs> what are you doing to me, John? I'm not doing anything to you. I'm, I'm signalling to my producers. So that is entirely, entirely different. And there was one more thing that you wanted to talk about, and that is the Feathers Awards. The Feathers Awards, John. I don't know anything really about the Feathers Awards, but I kept seeing them coming up on Twitter last night, and I, I felt very ignorant because it seems that they're now in their sixth year, and they're a celebration of the individuals who inspire the gay community throughout the year. And I just found it quite astonishing when I read who was nominated and wondered what on earth is going on here because, A, there did not seem to be any LGBTI individuals nominated as far as I could see. The categories were things like fag hag of the year, drama queen, etc. It just struck me that if we're going to have this glitzy event, which is great, it sounds like great fun. It sounds like it's also lavishly sponsored, I think by Chevrolet or something. Wonderful. But um, it was, it's disappointing to me that if we're going to look at who's inspiring the gay community, we, we couldn't put in anyone there involved in any kind of gay advocacy or anyone, in fact, genuinely committed to 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 gender equality, really. Fakilam Balula was nominated, wasn't he? He which, won, I think. He won. I think he won. I, also, and, and, and in what way is Fakilam Balula a gay icon or inspired? He then said that he, I think because he takes so many selfies, and I'm not even saying that facetiously, I think that is the kind of criteria they were using. Role model of the year was also eventually won by Zizo Beda, who's Selma Tunzi presenter, who beat out in that category... Tuli Madoncella, for instance. So one does wonder exactly what um, criteria they were using. Rebecca, thank you very much. There will be another Plan B at the same time next Thursday.